We know the, that even for me, we all sit under the authority of God's word. I am not the authority, but only God through his word is our authority. And so with that in mind, then we come now before his word. You can turn in your Bibles with me if you'd like to read along in Mark in chapter 15. You can turn in Mark uh, to chapter 15. And, and as you turn there, would you please pray with me? Our Father, thank you for your word to us. Would you help us now, guide us by your spirit, bring light to our minds and hearts to really listen here and to follow after you. Lord, would you help us to really look at that which is hard and to find strength in you. Guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. We'll start in verse 33. Mark 15, beginning in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is God's word. Now, as we have finally come in our very long journey through Mark to the end of the life of Jesus, you could probably feel, if you've been with us over the past couple of weeks, the, the progression of things, that the, the sermons have gotten a little, a little darker. I guess it's daylight savings time that the, the sun seems to set a little sooner. And part of this is because Mark's tone here has darkened. I mean, even, even, it's even a, a literally dark day that the sun itself from noon to three is, is blotted out in mid-afternoon. This is a dark time. Now, I'm going to do my best not to leave us in a puddle because puddles are no fun. But at the same time, I want us, me and all of us, to really listen to the Bible here. We know that the Bible celebrates heart-soaring joys, and the Bible sits 
in ice-cold darknesses. God's word does not shy away from running the full range of emotion and experience. So as we listen to this part here, we don't want to miss the reality that we are walking up to the edge of the abyss here and peering over the edge. In this text, we're seeing sin's curse in its fullest force, and it should make the hair on the back of our necks stand on end. From the other Gospels, uh, Luke and John record other words that Jesus has said on the cross. Uh, Matthew and Mark just record one sentence from the lips of Jesus as he hangs on the cross. And in fact, in Mark, it's the final word that Jesus will say in his whole gospel. Matthew records the same words, but records them in Hebrew, and Mark puts them down in the, in the original Aramaic. You heard it originally. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To me, that is the saddest, heaviest sentence in the entire Bible. We know that Jesus is eternally one with the Father. Uh, Jesus was before all creation. Jesus was not made. He is eternal uh, with the Father and the Spirit. And so even before Genesis 1, God was not lonely. God was not bored. God was not happy, unhappy. You know, he, he's their, their Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, and yet at the same time, they're in perfect union and relationship with each other. So now, here on the cross, in a way that is totally unimaginable for us, that union is now being torn ripped, wrenched, broken, shredded, so that Jesus is now forsaken by the Father. We call this, this sentence the cry of dereliction. How's that for a fancy word? The word uh, derelict is kind of an old, an old term. Sometimes it's used as an insult to refer to a to a homeless person. Uh, so someone that, a, a derelict is someone who doesn't have a home or a, or a job or property or family, a person that has nothing. That person is abandoned and alone. And that's true of Jesus here. And it's one thing to be forsaken or abandoned by a friend or a family member or a loved one. It's a completely different level to be abandoned or forsaken by God. L-O-I, L-O-I, my God, my God. 
Now, the ones listening here at the time, many of them misunderstood what Jesus was talking about. You can hear they're talking about some legendary pieces uh, about Elijah. Oh, uh, let's see if Elijah will come and take him down off the cross. Uh, They didn't fully understand what was going on. And so we, as we look at this, want to understand what Jesus means when he says this. And when we look at the, the actual comment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can see in the context of it that Jesus isn't actually asking the question. It's not a classroom where it's like someone goes, oh, well, here, let me tell you the reason. What he's doing here, maybe there's even a little footnote in your Bible about this, is he's quoting the Psalms from Psalm 22 in particular. And just as a side note, it's interesting to me that at Jesus's greatest moments of pain here and at the, the temptation in the desert, he quotes scripture. That should matter for us. But he's saying in the beginning of, of Psalm 22, I'll read the first line and then a little after. Psalm 22, beginning in verse 1 My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cried by day, but you don't answer, and by night, and I find no rest. So words David had written a thousand years before. And some will point out that, uh, that it's common in Jesus' day and culture to refer to a psalm by its, uh, by its first line. I mean, they don't have the numbers. They don't go, turn now to Psalm 22. That's a luxury for us that we have numbers assigned to them. And, and this is before that numbering system. And so it's similar to if I said, turn in your hymnal to Be Thou My Vision. And you, oh, oh yes, I know that whole psalm. You'd know it by its first line. And so when we look at this, some, some are saying, okay, this Psalm 22 starts with, with lament, but it moves to praise, and that's true. If you look at the end of this Psalm, it's very far from the beginning. Verse 27 here through the end says this, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go to the dust, and even the ones who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him, and it will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. And they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. So if the psalm here, Psalm 22, ends with praise, some say that Jesus, by referring to the first line of this psalm, is actually referring to the entire psalm. That Jesus is actually praising here, that Jesus is actually claiming Victory. Now, it is true that Jesus can lay down his life and he has the authority to take it back up again. We know that he will be raised in three days. But we should not fast forward to victory because here on the cross, we are at the beginning of the psalm and not at the end. 
there's part of us that desires to skip over heaviness because we don't know how to handle it. It's often too much for it, or, or sometimes it's because it makes us uncomfortable to face pain or tragedy. I mean, it's definitely uncomfortable to look at it in the life of Jesus, but it's also uncomfortable in our own lives as we look at tragedy in each other. And sometimes we have no idea what to say to a person who is suffering. What do you say to a person who is wrestling with a fatal disease? What do you say to a person who's just experienced a miscarriage? What do you say to a person who struggles with an ongoing battle with depression? These sorts of things sometimes make us uncomfortable. And so we just stay silent perhaps even avoid the person or at least avoid talking about it. Or maybe like Job's friends, whom he calls worthless physicians, sometimes we say, oh, cheer up, God's got a plan. Now, that's true. God does have a plan. Things will work out okay in the end for the Christian. But let's not gloss over pain and skip to glory. Jesus here, let's this loud cry ring out. LOI, LOI. We know the reason that this is such a great tragedy is because what is happening on the cross is a curse. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 3. And explaining some of what Jesus experienced, Galatians 3, starting in verse 13, just a few verses here, he says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We know that the end of the curse, there is redemption, that Jesus is now bringing his people near to God again. But you can see in this the effect of sin. You notice in this section of Galatians, it doesn't say that Jesus became cursed. It says that Jesus became a curse. He became the curse itself. He took on the entire curse upon his person. That's the reason why Christ must be forsaken by the Father, because he is here a curse. The experience of Jesus, then, is different from the experience of the psalmist. Similar in some ways, different than others. The psalmist, when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalmist cries that out because he feels forsaken. He feels like God is silent, that God is absent, that God is not there, and that when he prays, he is just speaking into empty air. 
Maybe you know that feeling. For the Christian, though, God has promised, he says so in Hebrews 13, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, never. The Christian is never, ever forsaken. You know that poem, Footprints? Usually it's with a, you know, kind of a cheesy little uh, poster or something, and there's a picture of a beach, and if you don't know it, that's okay. You don't need to know it. But, but there's some, it's a little cheesy, but there, there's some truth in it. That when the person sees only one set of footprints walking through the sand, that God is still there. That person is not forsaken. Now, his experience is still very real. It's still very achy. It still feels forsaken, but this is different than Jesus experienced. For the psalmist, for David, for us, we may feel forsaken by God. But for Jesus, he here is forsaken by God. L-O-I. L-O-I. This is hell itself. And I could barely look at it. It's like the experience of watching a car wreck or a scary movie when you hold your hand over your face and maybe you peek through the cracks in your fingers. Because a part of you can't look away, but it's just, it's too intense to bear. Perhaps then it's a kindness to us that God covered up three hours of this with darkness so that we wouldn't even see the full hideousness of the effect of our sin. Sorry, that hits me in a spot. We know that at least one person watched the centurion who is standing there is watching this all play out. The centurion is a, is a Roman uh, supervisor, for lack of a better word. It's his job to kind of keep the other soldiers in line. And this guy, uh, it's part of his job to make sure that Roman executions are carried out. So this centurion had probably seen and carried out hundreds of crucifixions watched hundreds of people as they die, and you can imagine how he might have grown hardened to the brutality of it. And yet there's something in this experience that pierced through his hard heart. Because he says here at the end in verse 39, truly this man was the son of God. And I want to know, when he says, truly this man was the son of God, what was it that led the centurion to say that? I mean, the centurion's not in in a Bible study here. He's not studying theology. He's not going to fancy seminary. He's not going, ah, yes, now I see that this this is the incarnation of God planned before the creation of the world. You know, he's, he's not saying, ah, oh, now at the cross here, I'm watching God's propitiation, the covering of sin. Now, all that's 
true. He didn't even see the fact that the curtain had been torn, the thing that would separate us from God. He didn't know about that. The centurion here can't see everything. In fact, even in his Roman context, and maybe your Bible has a footnote on this, you can translate this, truly this man was a son of God. It's different. He's maybe thinking, oh, this is more like a a Roman demigod, uh, like Hercules, you know? But at least, at least this centurion is seeing that there is something of cosmic, universal significance happening here at the cross. How did he see that? In 39, it says the centurion stood facing him, so... We know that the centurion had been watching this whole scenario play out. And then in the rest of 39, he says, when the centurion saw that in this way, Jesus breathed his last. Something about the way that Jesus breathed his last was striking to this man. Let me give us some context there. A person who was crucified who's put up on a cross, can die from blood loss. They can die from exposure. But usually, a person who is crucified dies of suffocation. Suffocation played out in exhaustion. And sometimes that took days. The reason is because as the person is strung up the way that they are strung up compresses the lungs so that the person can't breathe. And they have to push up with their feet to take every single breath. Eventually, the person is simply too tired to do that, and they asphyxiate. That's the reason, by the way, that in order to speed up the process of death, if they needed to, they'd break the person's legs so that they wouldn't be able to push up and breathe. So it is tough to breathe even on a cross. It is that much more difficult to speak, to even make a sound, especially at the end of a person's life. Mark says here in verse 37 that Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Mark doesn't tell us what that loud cry was. Maybe that was one of the sentences from the other Gospels. Uh, Maybe that was, as Luke tells us, Jesus saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Maybe it was the sentence that John tells us, it is finished. Or maybe, as I think, this wasn't even words at all, but just a loud groan. And this groan would not be one necessarily of victory, not yet. It's a groan of of pain. So that when the whole thing was over and the centurion has watched all of this played out, he he watches Jesus now hang there on a cross and he thinks this is more than a man, not only because he has seen Christ's 
power, but also because he had seen Christ's pain. The centurion didn't didn't understand everything, although he did understand more than some did, even some of the disciples. But Mark, at least, and God himself wants us to hear the truth in the centurion's words. Truly, this is the Son of God. Mark's come full circle. It's been a full year for us now walking with Jesus through Mark's gospel. Now as the centurion is saying, truly, this is the Son of God, you'll remember all the way back a year ago when we were in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the very title of his gospel starts like this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's as if Mark wants to say to us, listen, reader, listen, don't miss this. This really is God in the flesh. And this is what God in the flesh does. God in the flesh takes the curse of sin upon himself, is forsaken for our sake. L-O-I, L-O-I. That means everything for us. That is incredibly freeing for a Christian, and it puts a call on us. Uh, Paul talks about a similar thing here. Last place we'll go in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're the kind of person that writes in your Bible, underlines circles, or draws pictures, whatever it is that you do to help you understand, this is a verse that you probably want to mark or to, un- to underline because it's critical for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he, that's God, made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Did you hear that? So Jesus became sin so that we would be counted righteous. Jesus was abandoned by God the Father so that we would be reconciled to God the Father. And it's not just about me, although that's part of it. I matter, you matter. All of this is really about God and his work. He wants to display who he is to the world. So if we look at the verses that lead up to this very important verse that talk about, you know, Jesus was made sin for our sake, the verses before read like this, starting in verse, I'll back up to verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In this section, Paul's reminding us of true things, that Jesus has reconciled us, full stop. That's good news. And as a result of that, we, I, you, are ambassadors of God's reconciliation to others. That we're tearing down the dividing walls of hostility so that those like the centurion would get to stand before Jesus, see God, and say, ah, truly this is the Son of God. An ambassador for Christ then says to the Jew and to the Gentile, come, see Jesus. An ambassador for Christ says to the refugee and to the illegal alien, come see Jesus. An ambassador says to the white one, to the black one, to the Hispanic one, to the Asian one, come see Jesus. To the gay and to the straight person, come see Jesus. To the Democrat and to the Republican, come See Jesus to your next door neighbor. Come see Jesus. To your coworker and your classmate. Come see Jesus. To your family member. Come see Jesus. An ambassador says to all who are weary and heavy laden, come see Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he has made the Christian his ambassador. So while Christ cried out, Eloi, Eloi. Now we're crying out to others. Why will you stay in your God-forsaken place? Come to the foot of the cross. Come to Jesus who was forsaken to bring you to God. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we know that in your forsakenness, in your becoming the curse and taking on our sin upon yourself for our sake, that you've secured life, hope, happiness, and all things for your people. Help us to rejoice in that, to celebrate that, to find freedom in that, and to draw near to you in this. Lord, Help us now to be faithful ambassadors so that others might come to know you, the very Son of God. We give you praise in Jesus' name.
Amen.